The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. So um, we are very, very fortunate to have uh, Judith Regeer, who comes from the other side of the river at Clouds and Water Zen Center. She is the guiding teacher there for many years, and she brings with her many, many decades of rich experience, she embodies the Dharma, the uh, wisdom and the compassion of the Dharma. I'm very grateful <laughs> to call her, I'm embarrassing her, but I'm very grateful to have this opportunity because she's a long, long time Dharma sister, a heart sister on this journey. And it just makes me happy that she's back with us here at Common Ground and that she has a chapter She's a, she's a very um, uh, deep student of the Dharma, um, a, a scholar, I would say, in her own right. And she's written a um, chapter in the book, which is the topic of this talk, called Receiving the Marrow, Teachings on Dogen by Soto Zen Women Priests. So we're also very fortunate to have a wise woman priest with us. So enjoy. Thank you. I need the book back. Oh. <laughs> So, good evening. I'm very happy to be here. Um, my joke is uh, whenever anyone doesn't like clouds and water, I always say, you should go to Common Ground. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I came to Common Ground myself. So I'm happy to be here. I used to, in the 70s, I lived two blocks from here and would eat breakfast here. <laughs> and we used to, my husband and I called it the hand because there was this sign <laughs> like this, if some of you remember. So it's wonderful to see what happened to the hand uh, over the years. Well, I'm uh, going around to try and see if people would be interested in this book. Uh, and I could say that it's a historic book. And I'll read, uh, well, let's see. I'll read Okamura Roshi. He's one of my favorite Zen teachers, what he wrote on the back. As far as I know, this is the first such collection by women Soto Zen teachers in the West. These are the fruits of their decades of study and practice. So mostly I want to say is this is the first time women have written about Dogen. That's pretty incredible in a way. And it came together at a, a Zen conference where the women were sitting around and the idea came, well, why don't we write about Dogen? And then it go, went on and on. And finally, 11 of us got, us got it together in our busy lives to write on Dogen. And that's how the book came to be. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about Dogen. 
uh, A. Dogen. He was a 13th century Zen teacher. Um, he was a very important Zen teacher in my lineage. Uh, he tried, he was very radical and a reformer. And he went to China from Japan to find the authentic Dharma. And he went around and around, and he wasn't very satisfied. Uh, but finally, right as he was about to go home, he found a teacher that he thought was authentic in his mind and studied with this teacher. And then he came back to Japan and tried to rejuvenate Zen in Japan. And as most of us know, it's the word calcified, how calcified religious institutions can get. And he was someone who tried to shake it up. And Zen, I know the reason I came to Zen was I liked this idea of writing poetry and throwing it to the wind that I had heard about Zen teachers doing. But actually, Zen is a long-standing, thousands-of-year-old tradition. And there's a lot of points in it that are calcified and are just like any other religion. So he came to shake it up, which he did. Um, he wrote a long treatise uh, called the Shobogenzo, which is translated as the true treasury of the Dharma eye. It has 96 what we call fascicles, or chapters in it. He wanted to do 100, but he died at 96. Um, What do I want to say about Dogen? In a way, one of the reasons I'm going around and talking is because I, I feel like in order to get into Dogen, you have to have a guide. Because he's very hard to read, if any of you have tried to read the Shobogenzo. And it's kind of, a, uh, I, I feel like it's kind of like the opera. I don't know if you guys are opera buffs, but. I'm really not. I'm kind of illiterate there. But I had a friend in New York, when I lived in New York, who said, I am going to get you into the opera. And he would do things for me, like we would go to the opera, but he would make sure I had an English libretto before, so I could read the story and know what was happening. And then, when a certain wonderful aria he would poke me, you know, and say, this is great, you know. And, and he really guided me through the opera. And at the end, I kind of got the opera. You know, at first I thought, what a melodrama. That was what I thought. But after this man introduced me, I was kind of taken with the opera. And I feel like that's what Dogen is like. That if you find a good guide, uh, you're kind of taken with Dogen. And I had a terrific guide. Uh, Katagiri Roshi was my root teacher. He was on Lake Calhoun. And uh, he really introduced us all to Dogen. 
And I kind of think that this book is a guide, a good introduction. And partially I say that because it was written by women, so it's very personal in a way, except for mine. <laughs> Mine's kind of scholarly. But a lot of them are quite personal, how they practice Dogen. Uh, so I'm thinking that it's a good way to get introduced if any, I mean, if anyone's interested in this very poetic uh, expression of the Dharma. It's poetry. It's him trying to write about what the experience of interdependence is, what the experience of an open mind and an open heart actually feels like. I also call him a 20th century cubist, even though he was in the 13th century. He was ahead of his time. Um, and the reason I call him a cubist is because when you read him, if, if you don't understand that he's a cubist, you can't get it at all because he contradicts himself and he's trying to show every point of view at once. This way and that way and this way and that way. That's what it's like to read him. Every point of view, over and over, he's very repetitive. A little bit, if you're familiar with Gertrude Stein, a little, he reminds me of Gertrude Stein. I love, when I was in college, I read Gertrude Stein. Uh, very repetitive, very uh, contradictory. He'll say one thing, then he'll contradict himself. So if you're trying to, um, uh, outline, you can't do it, you know, because it's like a Picasso painting where the nose is over here and the, you know. So if you know that, then it's easier to read. Like, oh, he, there is no right way. There is no one point of view. And that's how he expresses the enlightenment of a very flexible mind. The mind of enlightenment is very flexible and it doesn't get attached to any particular point of view. And he expresses it quite a bit in his writing. What else was I going to say? Oh, uh, Jan Chosen Days is another one of my uh, teachers whom I really respect. She's from Great Thou Monastery. And how she described this cubism is this way. She's the last chapter in the book. Dogen Zenji is at home in this world of apparent opposites. He is a mountain goat at play in the mountain range of paradox, happily leaping from one peak to another peak. So I think that's a great description. Uh, the opposites, showing all the different facets of the opposites, not getting attached to one side or the other, and living, being comfortable living in paradox, which is what life is. 
a total contradictory, paradoxical, ironic life. And how do we settle down into that? Um, so that's kind of an introduction about Dogen. One of my practices is to try and slow down. So every now and then I, I try and slow myself down. Um, I'd like to talk just a little bit about women uh, in Buddhism. Since this is a, this is not a feminist tract by any stretch. It's really women writing about Dogen. We're not writing about feminism per se. Uh, but Dogen was uh, very much a promoter of equality in practice, uh, non-discrimination, uh, gender, race, caste, all those things. And he did write one fascicle that was particularly about non-discrimination, that we all have inherent enlightenment. Every single being, all beings, have Buddha nature. And he did have women uh, students uh, transmitted heirs. Um, so let me, uh, so the name of the fascicle that is particularly about non-discrimination is called, I wrote it down so I could pronounce it, uh, Reha Tokuzui, which um, when it's translated, is translated receiving the marrow with bowing. That's the translation. So that's how the title got here. And Okamura goes on to say, uh, these essays are all mana jewels in Indra's net. Each has its own beauty and yet is connected with and reflected in all the others. As a whole, they shine in the boundless Dharma world. Reading these essays, we can see that what Dogen taught about equality 800 years ago was true. I sincerely make prostrations to these women teachers for their attainment of the Dharma. So that's very sweet. But what he's saying is that finally, um, there's a manifestation of this equality happening uh, in America. Uh, Dogen states that it does not matter whether a teacher is male or female. What's essential is that the teacher should be a person of thusness. He quotes the Buddha on how to encounter such a teacher and not make personal judgments regarding the teacher's appearance, caste, or status. In describing this quality of a true teacher, the marrow, Dogen implies that the teacher's realization is something palpable that the student must discern. This quality, this basis of the teacher's realization is an expression of the essence or the mirror. Importantly, Dogen asserts that this quality is expressed equally and fully in both male and female teachers. 
And the last thing about this is from Dogen's words, exactly. Dogen asks, why are men special? Emptiness is emptiness. Four great elements are four great elements. Five skandhas are five skandhas. Women are just like that. Both men and women attain the way. You should honor attainment of the way. Do not discriminate between men and women. This is the most wondrous principle of the Buddha way. So if you know about history, um, the Asian nuns had a very difficult time. Uh, they didn't have money. They didn't get donations. Uh, basically, they were the maids for the men, the cooks, the clean the laundry, that kind of thing. Uh, and many of these women were completely devoted to the Dharma. And there's quite a lot of books out now, the women feminists, historian, Buddhists, uh, have uncovered all these stories of the devotion of the women and how many women really practiced over all these years. Uh, in particularly in Japan in the, uh, the 20th century, there was a lot of uh, the nuns really working on getting full status. And um, I have a favorite nun who, uh, she's died, but like in about 1980, she pushed and pushed until she could do the highest level ceremonies in Buddhism uh, in Zen. And they had never been done by a woman before. So she, what they call, broke the glass ceiling, this Japanese, very sweet looking Japanese woman. Kojima Kendo was her name. So that's just a little example that this is kind of uh, historic. Yay. Okay, so now um, I'm going to switch to my chapter. Which is great realization. I feel like I have a lot of gall. <laughs> to talk about enlightenment. Um, but the way it came to pass was about four years ago, I have a group of the seniors at Clouds and Water. We meet and study together, and we were looking to study something new. And Ken Ford looked up and said, well, why don't we study enlightenment? <laughs> you know, I like, uh, as the head person, I kind of, gulped and said, uh, well, okay. You know, that's the hardest thing, of course. What is enlightenment? So I called Reb Anderson, who's a, what I would put in the big wig category of teachers, and I said, you know, we want to study enlightenment. And I was mostly focused on where do I find Dogen's enlightenment story? He has a particular story. And uh, Tenshin Roshi laughed at me and said, you know what, it doesn't matter what his story is, you should read the Shobogenzo. And he gave me certain chapters that were Dogen's expression of enlightenment. 
And so we studied this chapter, uh, Daigo, quite a lot. I think the group studied it for about a year and a half. And then I continued to study, and then I wrote about what we had uncovered. And it was just a great journey for me uh, about misunderstandings about enlightenment, my misunderstandings about great realization or satori or nirvana or all those kind of words. So tonight I'm going to try and share a little bit with you about what I found out. Um, and I still gulp a little bit at taking on this topic. So I think in the beginning of my Zen life, my Buddhist life, I had a very strong misconception about enlightenment. I thought that, oh, you sit, 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 and study, 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 and sit, 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 and then something's going to happen to you. And then, what? You won't have any suffering. Uh, you won't have a regular life. I don't know. What happens? Do you fly up? You know, like Vimal uh, uh, Shanti Deva, at the end of his great discourse, he evaporated. This is very Tibetan. And then only his voice. You could only hear his voice. And then they never saw him again, or some kind of story like that. So that's what I wanted. I particularly, <laughs> I particularly wanted to escape my life. Very, very much. Very strong. Uh, I had a lot of pain in my life in my early years. And I really, 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 really wanted to escape. So I thought, that's what Buddha said, I could escape. And uh, I could not have any suffering anymore. Of course, that's not what Katagiri Roshi told me, because I remember, I don't know, I'm just going to kind of improvise now, because it's coming out differently. I was about 23 or so, very young, and it was my first time do, sitting a sushin, which is our stronger practice where we sit all day, and you go in for a one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. So he's an Asian man, hardly speak English. This is like in 1973. And I'm a young girl full of disorder <laughs> going in to see him. And it's dark in the room, and he's sitting like a Buddha. And I go and sit in front of him. And he looks at me, and he says, you can't escape pain. <laughs> and he rings the bell, which means I have to leave. <sighs> so that was my beginning of exploring enlightenment. And now I'm really happy that he did that. I mean, I'm really happy that I had a good teacher because I couldn't get that far astray. 
So now, after several decades, what I'm thinking enlightenment is, is a type of presence, a type of openness, stability, and nowness that's somewhat continuous. Um, that receives everything, pain and pleasure. You know the eight worldly winds? I love doing, this is my, uh, so, uh, pleasure and pain, success and failure, gain and loss, and praise and criticism. So how can I receive the worldly winds with stability, with uprightness, with openness, with nothing blocking the direct experience of what's in front of me? And the more I can string along some moments like that, the more I can say, I'm enlightened. And when I was studying Shantideva, the Bodhisattva way of life, it was very interesting for me. They talk about having two veils, like a bridal veil, uh, something, a veil that you see, have to see through so that you're not directly experiencing the moment. You're seeing through something. So the first veil is three quarters of the book. The first veil is our emotional reactivity based on our idea that we're a single solitary person and we have our own desire system and in order to have a good life, we have to satisfy our desire system. So that is really hard to deconstruct. I love that word, deconstructing, or take apart all of our habituated reactions based on a centralized self. And um, now then, we're, uh, especially Dogen's brand of Zen doesn't use technique very much. They just sit you down in the ocean and you figure out how to do it yourself. But Tibetans and Vipassana have a lot of guidance about how to take apart these veils. So I often borrow from the Tibetans and the Vipassana teaching because they're, they're very, they have a lot of energy around how to dismantle our habituated personal patterns. And it was three quarters of the book was that on reactivity. The second veil, which was only in the Prajna wisdom chapter, was the veil of how a human mind actually perceives things. Oh, that's a little bit different type of a veil. And it's um, what I would call more existential in a way. It's 
not about your personhood. It's about how humans collectively see things. And Dogen is very, very into dismantling our assumptions, perceptual assumptions about our life. So what he deconstructs almost in every fascicle is the idea that we are a separate self. And the veil of perception, I think what, you have to be sitting a lot to get down to the subtlety of how to deconstruct this one. So um, the being, deconstructing being, uh, the three things is, uh, this is what the veil consists of, that we're solid or permanent, me, that we're unitary, that I'm a unit, you're a unit, you're a unit, you're a unit, and that we're independent. So that's our misunderstanding on the perceptual level of what's going on. Because in Buddhism, of course, they say you're not solid or permanent, you're impermanent. Uh, you're very, very porous, we're interdependent. You know, everything is affecting everything else. And we're not a solitary unit. We're completely porous. So that's one of the things that Dogen, a lot of Buddhism does, but I'm speaking particularly of Dogen. He doesn't let you get away with thinking about being. And he does this thing constantly to show you, mm-mm, nobody home, no one's there, no solid person. You can't even say being. You know, you can't even name it because the name, language, he's really into that. Language is meaningless in some ways. In some ways, language is very important because that's how we communicate with each other. Like, I'm doing this talk, and he wrote. You know, he was really into language. He was a poet, and he wrote 96 chapters, plus there's other stuff of his. You know, he was very, very productive. So it's not that language is bad, but you have to understand language. That language is not the thing. I mean, you can call me Judith Regeer, but that name hardly gives you any information about who this five skanda person is. Very little information. So not in the name, not in the language, but underneath what is happening. The other thing that Dogen doesn't let you get by on is our understanding of time. We have a lot of assumptions about time. In fact, it's 8.02. <laughs> 
and there's uh, what do they call it? The thing in London, the Big Ben, but the median uh, Greenwich line. Wow, you know, and morning, and we all got here by seven. So in a way, I think also our feelings about time are what are a very burdensome produce our anxiety and um, make us suffer so much, at least in my own life. How much can I get done in a day? And is it important that I get done in a day? When I'm in my usual ordinary mind, I say yes. And maybe I'll even stay up to midnight to get it done in a day. But if you begin to tap into timelessness, and spaciousness, all of a sudden, you don't know. It's a whole different world than kind of a world. So in Buddhism, time is deconstructed in a very wonderful way, I think. And we talk about it as you, I'm going to use the terrible word, you should be in the present moment, right? That's what we say. And that's what I said enlightenment was, too, actually. I said enlightenment was being able to receive the present moment just as it is, continuously, or always, or most of the time. But you can't find the present moment. So here we are. We're deconstructing it now. You can't find it because it happens so fast. So in Buddhism, they called it one sixty-second of a finger snap. Do you get that? The, the sound of the snap divided into 62 parts is a moment. And in quantum physics, they have a number for the moment. And the number is 1 to the negative 42nd power, which means a period 42 zeros and a 1. So can you? catch the present moment? The answer is no. Not with your conscious mind. Our conscious mind doesn't work that fast. So even when you say, I'm in the present moment, it is already past. So in order to live in a new way, you have to get underneath the conscious mind. That's what they say. Uh, I could think of something like, you know, enlightenment cannot be perceived through consciousness. It's not about consciousness. It's underneath our thinking mind, our discriminative mind. And we can kind of feel it when our mind is quiet and not trying to catch it. So this, again, is why sitting practice is very important. 
to learn how to calm your mind, still your mind, so that you begin, can begin to catch uh, the expansiveness and the vastness of what's actually going on, which is um, starting to take away the veil of perception. Right? So what you end up with is a very clear and open and flexible mind and heart that can receive things, that is not reactive, that's not futuring. Do you know what I mean by futuring? Thinking about the future. And uh, for me, when I'm mindful of my state of mind, I am often thinking about the future, what's going to happen in the future. And of course, also thinking about the past. So in order to change how we feel our presence, we have to work with these two ideas of being and time. OK, I think I'm ready for this now. Took me a while to get there. So, um, and this is really starting to go into Dogen. What Dogen says. Uh, let's see. I think if I kneel now, some of you over here might want to change your seat. If you want to do that, go ahead. There's, you know, there's good ones right up here. <laughs> and I'm not very scary, as you probably know by now. Okay, I, I'm going to apologize before I, you know what I did, I just went to Kinko's with the handout and I said, enlarge the handouts and laminate them. And now I realize, oh, well, they look terrible. <laughs> so, and they might be hard to read. I should have done it differently, but I did. So we'll just deal with this the way it is. Okay. so. This is the ordinary view with the veils, particularly the perceptual veils, of the development of enlightenment. And um, he works with four components to enlightenment. So we'll start, the, and I'll just give you the four. One is aspiration, that the minute you say, oh, I'm interested, I want to start to take a vow. Bodhicitta sometimes it's called. Then there's practice, you know, where we're working on our mind or working to sit or working to be generous, that kind of a practice. Then there's realization. And realization is when you have an insight or you have a taste of something beneath your discriminative mind. You have a taste of this vast timelessness or non-being or interconnection, co-arising wholeness. And then up here we have attaining the Buddha way, or sometimes it's called nirvana. Now the word nirvana has been, what, what should we, mutilated by our society and our culture and our understanding. You know, there's even the band. 
and there's probably a perfume. Um, and I always thought of nirvana like uh, another word they say is the vermilion tower. You know, the tower in the sky, the heavenly realm. But in Buddhism, the heavenly realms are just part of the circle, the cycle. Uh, they're not enlightenment, the heavenly realms. In fact, the heavenly realm, do you know the game Shoots and Ladders? The heavenly realm is the lawn shoot, you know, from the top of the board all the way to the bottom of the board. So they say from heaven you quickly descend to hell because you can't hold on to heaven. Heaven is just, you know, if you have it for a few seconds, great. You know, or even a year, maybe you had a great year. You just got married or something like that, or you're on a honeymoon. But it doesn't last, we all know that. So nirvana is something else. I don't really use this word now because we have so many misunderstandings. I, I like Buddha way. I think the Buddha way is a really good feeling to this idea of a continuous stream of immediacy. That's a phrase from Dogen. Continuous stream of immediacy. The Buddha way. So I put this dotted line. So this is filled with delusions of perception. This way of looking. This is a big Dogen uh, teaching. Because we're, what we're as Buddhists, I think Vipassana and Zen are the same on this. You can tell me later if I'm wrong. But we're trying to have a non-dualistic approach to life, a whole approach. I like the word whole, W-H-O-L-E, better than unity, oneness. It's not really oneness, because oneness has to include two-ness. But whole means the one and the two together, working together. And that's very important in Dogen. He calls this zenki. That's a whole fascicle that I adore. It's called total dynamic working. That the total function of the opposites working together is the dharma. It's unified in the sense that they work together in dynamism. So this has many, many opposites in it. So one is, this half we would call delusion. You know, we're just human beings trying very hard. Uh, aspiration and practice. Oh boy, then you have a realization, and now you're in the enlightenment half. Realization and the Buddha way. So already, that is not total functioning. That's a dualistic view. It also is dualistic in the sense of time. It's linear time. But linear time is deconstructed in Buddhism. In Buddhism, every moment is a whole. 
actually, uh, what's the word? Uh, discontinuous. They're discontinuous moments. The moment is the whole ball of wax. The past, present, and future is in the moment. Your uh, self, both sides of yourself are in the moment. So I'm going to stop for a second and talk about total personality. Because that's, that's this idea of what is a whole, not dual. So in an ordinary point of view, with the veils on, I would say the historic Judith Regeer is kind of yucky. You know, she has all these faults. Um, she's bound up by her egocentricity. Um, and uh, I have to uh, get old, get sick, and die. So that part of myself I don't like very much. My historic karmic consciousness. Everyone is Buddha. Buddha nature, we have inherent enlightenment just by being the mystery itself. So I love my main thing about being the mystery is if we really stop, we are the mystery. Just even that the heart is pumping and go, I mean, the body is a total incredible mystery. It is the Dharma. So you can't say that you have to go outside of yourself to be enlightened. You have to realize that enlightenment is in every moment, in every posture, in everything. Zenki, the total dynamic working, is functioning in every moment, in every person, in every situation. But usually we keep those separate. We compartmentalize them. But Total personality, this comes from Katagiri Roshi, is really knowing that those two are working together in every moment. That your karma consciousness is, is your life force. It's wonderful. It's your uniqueness. The other thing that's so wonderful is that we're all unique. There will never be another you ever wow you know sometimes I say oh that's good <laughs> no one will have to suffer in my unique way but after that it's really the precious human life as um, the Tibetans verse wow you know why would I want to throw that away? Why would I want to transcend my humanity? I want to be in love and attached to my children and my husband. And I want to share my passion for the Dharma with people. That all requires my karma consciousness. That all requires my humanity, my humanness. And I really want my humanness. I want my humanness to be really open. So the total personality means that these two sides of ourselves come together. And that's in the Prajnaparamita. Do you guys study the Prajnaparamita? Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. 
they're actually the same thing that appear in each moment completely, totally working together. And if you can live your life connected to that, I call that realization or enlightenment. So this has a lot of duality. The aspiration, well, there's a beginning, and there's the goal or the end. So that's a opposite. There's the means and the end. So do you sit meditation as a means to get enlightened? Now, in Dobin's view, he would say, no. How could that be? This moment is everything. The moment you're sitting is everything. You're not doing it as a means to get someplace else. You're doing it as a means to express the essence of this moment. Uh, he calls that practice realization one word. He tried to bring those two opposites into a whole, W-H-O-L-E. I suppose you could do H-O-L-E too, but I'm trying to work with this idea of completeness of each moment. Uh, anything else on there? Okay, so. That's how we usually think of it, that enlightenment is a developmental stage, that you aspire for it, you practice really hard, someday you have an insight, and then after your insight, you try to work on getting it to happen all the time. <laughs> and that getting it to happen, for me, that's one of the biggest tricks in, practice, in my zazen. And I don't do it anymore. But I used to try to get back to my last insight. Oh, I was doing this. I was doing that. No, mm, mm, mm. So I'm completely unsettled in my meditation practice because I'm trying to recreate something. So that really has to be let go. And when I think in this way, I can actually let it go. So let's move down to Dogen's, what he calls the circle of the way. He calls it a circle. So if you take away the veil of perception, the veil of time, and the veil of being, being a person, then Dogen presents enlightenment as the circle of the way. So let's work with this chart down here. Um, some of this chart is from Katagiri Roshi. So he talked about, even though you can't catch the present moment, I'm still going to talk about it. Okay? But I explained that, right? He talked about time and space have to meet in the moment. And at that meeting place, where the truth actually happens. The truth happens at the intersection of time and space. And I did it right now. I wrote now here. And the Tibetan teacher wrote, now wow. <laughs> that was her little phrase. And because I can't show it, I, I made another little circle, but it would really be at the intersection 
The circle of the way is completely happening in every moment. Our aspiration, our practice, our realization in the Buddha way is always completely happening. Now, 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 now. That really changes how I sit and how I am in life. That I don't have the sense anymore of a trajectory. I'm settled in the self. I'm I, I'm saying this as if I always do this. I don't mean to imply, but when I'm feeling my practice deeply, I'm settled into right now. With I love the word settled. Uh, that's a Dogen phrase, to be settled in the self. If you're settled in the self, the world will settle in itself. So. To be settled in the self means that this whole process is happening in every moment. And what that means is we're non-dualistic. We have a whole sense of our personality, which would be our karmic consciousness and our enlightened consciousness, our co-arising, our coming together in each moment. Cause and effect are one. If you undo the veil of time, see, with the veil of time, cause is over here and effect is over there. But if you take away linear time, in the moment, the effect of the past is there and the cause of the future is there in the moment. It's happening co-dependently co-arising are the technical terms anyway. Cause and effect, past and the future are in the now. Uh, this is my understanding, which is our past conditions are now. So it's very much there. My karmic consciousness is very much here right now. I'm right. I'm up here right now. Makes me cry. How, how did I get here? Those of you who know me a long time, how did I get here? I don't know. But 40 years of practicing Buddhism are in this moment. And if we plant a good seed, any good seed, a mustard seed, in the moment, that produces our future. So cause and effect are whole. And they happen right now. Let's see what else I wrote. Each moment expresses the all, all aspects. And that's why um, I call it cubist, Dogen. All aspects are expressed in the moment. And there's no beginning and there's no end. I, I'm sure you've heard of that before. A seamless eternity. And the Buddhist view, Buddha's view, is one seamless moment. So one seamless moment. So let me see if I can groove on this. I said a moment 
comes up and goes down is created and destroyed in one sixty-second of a finger snap. So we can't consciously grasp it, but it's happening. So it can't even birth and die. It's so fast. So if you penetrate into, without your intellect, because your intellect can't get it, but your awareness, I think your total awareness, can maybe catch it. And what you catch is eternity, is no birth, no death. No time. Did I write those down? I don't think I did. They're the eight concepts. No. So that, that's kind of permanent. So impermanence and permanent are opposite. How do we bring those together? So in a sense, when you're very deeply into time, you actually are into timelessness. And that is very much of a relief right there. And that's why I sit a lot, because I feel it's very important for me to feel connected to that type of reality. I need to feel connected to interdependence in order to get enough relief so that I can do the karmic conscious world, the world of form, directly without the veils. And you're very close to beauty, the beauty of eternity and the mystery, if you're able to keep it close in. And birth and death, success and failure, gain and loss, all those things become just a part of the texture of our life, rather than so important. Right. I think pleasure, success, praise, uh, what's the one I'm missing, gain. When I'm glued to those, I, I, I'm very anxious and I suffer a lot. But if I'm trying to stay at this moment, moment kind of practice, um, what is produced, and what Dogen said is, one of the things that comes from enlightenment is a flexible mind, uh, or a, a mind, a functioning mind. So if our mind is clear and open, then we can relate to whatever is arising directly without a lot of fog. And that is what I aspire to. And you have to do it continuously, which is why they call it the way. Now, there are a lot of, a lot of translations 
of Dogen when he's talking about the way. So one of them is seriatim passage. So I looked up seriatim several, several times. Seriatim is, comes from the word series. So there are a series of moments. And our karma, each moment is conditioned by the last moment. So it's a series, a karmic series. So that's why we can say, I was a baby, and then I was eight, and then I was 16, and then I'm 35. And you know, there is linear time through this series. But it's actually a passage. Each moment we move through, that's called the way. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's really cool that we're not, that's nothing um, uh, stable. It's, it's a way that we're expressing this marrow, the suchness of each moment going through the way. Let me just see if there's anything I really want to Oh, I could do one more uh, slide. But this is from Okamura Roshi, who's a uh, Dogen scholar and translator. The circle of the way, everything exists in the moment. We arouse the way-seeking mind moment to moment. We practice moment to moment. We become fully aware or realize moment to moment. And we are in the way moment to moment. A practitioner should realize afresh the state of great realization moment to moment. The time, which is just the moment of this realization, is now. A practitioner should realize afresh the state of great realization moment to moment. The time, which is just the moment of this realization, is now. Okay, let's do one last thing and then we'll talk, uh, have questions or comments. Okay, so this is slightly different than the circle of the way. It's the second sentence. I'll just say generally in a Dogen fascicle, the first paragraph has the main gist of what he's deconstructing uh, in the whole. And so this is the second sentence section, and I'm such an outliner, or uh, I love lists. That's probably why I'm a Buddhist, right? There's all these lists. Please give me instructions, you know. Okay, this is the second sentence. The great realization is manifested in the now. But I think that's kind of like um, uh, what in Zen we would call Satori or Kensho or insight. It's the moment when you have a change in your perception of how things are. 
or a moment when you feel interdependence as opposed to a unit. So you do have these moments when you're sitting. And sometimes you have these moments when you're not sitting also. Different things happen in your life and you have a shift, a perceptual shift, an existential shift of how you're perceiving things. So Dogen acknowledges that there is a moment, not a moment. There's several moments, or there could be a lot of moments when you're absolutely in a different way of seeing. And what he's trying to say is, most people say that's the goal of our practice. And he is trying to help us see that enlightenment is much, much bigger than those insights. Those insights are wonderful. They're, they give us information. But they're not enlightenment. <laughs> they're just a part of the way. So that's number one. Number two is the way is realized through no realization. This is mu realization in Zen. So this is the hardest one to understand, of course. But what it means is the realization, it can't be conceptual. If it's in the realm of your ideas and your intellect, it's not it. It has to be below your consciousness. It has to be an awareness from a different place in yourself, what they call mu, empty, nothing fancy. You don't even know. It's nothing. That's what they say. It's nothing. Uh, so this slightly contradicts the first one, right? And we never think of no realization as realization, or mu realization, or, um, well, I, I don't know what even to say about this, because you can't say anything, right? It's non-conceptual. And it can't be held onto at all. And as soon as you say, wow, it's gone. And you're back up to here, probably. OK. The third one, this is, I think, what I like about Dogen the most. He, Nagarjuna, who's uh, from the Majamaka school and really started the Prajnaparamita Sutras quite a bit about emptiness, he was the personification of no veils. He really de deconstructed all of our perceptions. And he was very into emptiness. And what Dogen did, again, was he reeled it back into, what's a human being to do? What should we do with all of this? And you know, I've experienced that. I've known people who have had wonderful, great realizations. And they're kind of icky people. <laughs> you know? I wouldn't want to be married to them. You know, or so, they, what good is it? 
In fact, I had a friend who had a very deep realization. She was a student of mine and came into the dope sun room. And I, I think she had a kind of a realization about move, about nothing. And she said, oh my god, it's not at all what I imagined. It's not what I fantasized. In fact, it's nothing. It, it's just this. It's just, you know. <laughs> so, and she, I think she grieved for a while that she had to let go of her idea of liberation. So Dogen says, we reflect our realization and we freely utilize our realization in the 24 hours of our daily activity. So this is very much a part of what he considers enlightenment, is that you are reflecting this. You're using this view, right view, in the Eightfold Path. You're using the view in your life. It's reflected. That's a beautiful word, reflected. And freely utilized. And there's another sentence in Zen. One thing about Zen is uh, we like to um, use poetry and images. We don't teach in the same way Vipassana. Vipassana, I haven't done that much Vipassana, but it's very precise and the instructions are very precise. And I love that about it. But in Zen, we just use images. And you either get them or you don't get them, but it's, it's very poetic, our instructions. And um, one of this is uh, mud balls, playing with the mud balls. Uh, a Zen person should be covered in mud, the mud of life, the mud of daily life. And uh, Dogen in this chapter says, we freely play with throwing the mud balls. Isn't that freely play? And play is a big word in Dogen, you gay. You play with life. You play with the karmic consciousness. You play with the conditions of life. And you throw the mud balls with everybody else. But you reflect all of the above. So in that sense, we don't not suffer. How can you, can, you know, my friend, I just visited my friend who's doing chemotherapy. and. I, I just cried on her brown couch. She talks a lot about her brown couch, you know, where she is all the time now. I don't, I, that, that's a mud ball that I want to be around for my friend through the eyes of compassion. So uh, just that image of playing in the mud and also the mud you know, a white lotus is the symbol of enlightenment, but the lotus is rooted in the mud. And that's the wholeness. Oh, I, this is my main point. 
that daily life and enlightenment work together and are whole. The mud and the lotus need each other. They function together. They, uh, in my fascicle it said, they're intimate partners. Isn't that nice? Intimate partners. And the last one, this is very important too, losing realization and letting the practice go, leaving no trace of enlightenment. So all four of these aspects are what Dogen is encouraging us to understand about enlightenment. We're usually in a very linear way. We just think of the first one. So this last one is very much um, the in the 10 ox herding pictures, the last one is the teacher going in back into delusion, back into the marketplace. And you can't tell at all that they're coming from a different place. They're coming from the eyes of compassion. And they're going to play the mud balls with you and see if we can live together in harmony, you know. So this also, the stink, I'm thinking of the stink of Zen, they call it, are people who, they just stink of realization, you know. And uh, is that helpful? I wonder. <laughs> you know, does that help? Uh, no, in fact, it shows that they're attached still to one side. And non-attachment is the second noble truth, right? So we're trying to be free of our attachments so that we can reflect and receive enlightenment in every moment. So I think this has really changed me. I know it's really changed me. And it's really changed my practice since I've been studying this this last four years. And what I experience from studying this is being very, very settled and willing to accept the present moment the way it is. Because everything is in it. And there's nowhere to go. So we have uh, 15 minutes if there likes to be some discussion of this. I'll just say, if you are interested in this, I've written a few blogs particularly about this. And you could go to my blog. Yes. You know, listening to you talk, I, uh, I'm, I'm struck at, you know, I'm looking for one defining thing that brings us together. But it's, it's, it seems to be it's all about interrelationship. You know, you had your line on the first panel, 
that showed all these different things occurring in, in your life. And, and it's not, it, it seems that it's not about any particular thing. It's how these things interplay with each other, mm-hmm. which tends to underscore the futility of grabbing on to any particular thing at any moment in time. I think of like the Grand Canyon. I'm told that um, it's hard to believe that the Grand Canyon and all its grandeur was cut out by the subtleties of, well, actually, what were streams. And it would maybe more generalized, say, the Western watershed. But you know, you got this great thing that happened. But really, what this grandiose thing that you're, grandeur, I should say, thing that you see is through all these subtleties, eons of subtleties. And I was even thinking that in those subtleties, really fantastic things came and went on the way to producing this big thing. And I think, for me, that, that kind of captures a little bit of what, I'm, what I experience is that, uh, like this evening when I was meditating, I'm planning to bouncing around a lot. And I've evolved where um, I accept that, being able just to accept that bounciness is just part of this whole flow, you see. And that's actually a big point for me because a year ago, it was more of an arm wrestling match. And that, you know, that's, that inhibits me. But now I'm beginning to understand about accepting this, oh yeah, this is just part of it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have to nirvana at this moment, it's just part of it. And, and if I get that big moment where things just really open up great, but that, that, that doesn't define anything, yeah. as well as my bouncy mind of it just, there and I and I'm just seeing the continuity I guess of all this piecing together. I think that, that yeah I think that's for me personally in the last few months this continuity of, of this Mark's been emphasizing the need for practice uh, as a as a vehicle to get you there. You know you see it's not what practice does. It's just it's the vehicle and if you don't practice don't have to be a, but well, that's my words, but it's very close. But anyway, so that's kind of my thought here. It's, it's all about this interrelationship. Things happen. All sorts of things happen. And uh, I think getting there and just seeing this is a big part of it. So one thing from Dogen's point of view is practice and realization are one word. So that when you're practicing, you're also realizing the moment as it is. And when you're realizing an insight, you're also practicing. Now, is he supposed to say that because when you're practicing, um, and this is where words start really failing here, so I, this might not be the right way uh, off the cuff here, but when you're practicing, you're realizing because you're open to all this. You know, the word realizing comes in just because Well, you don't really have to realize anything. You're inherently zenki. You're inherently total dynamic working in this moment, always. So you just have to reconnect your mind with the fact that it's happening right now, and that's realization. But 
we also, a lot of the times, are practicing. But he really wanted you to say, to know, that practicing is realizing. Because it's the expression of this moment. And from his point of view, there's no other moment. That's hard to get, but that's his point of view. There's a wonderful, great poem about the hermitage building a hut. Uh, I wish I had it, but one of the sentences, I'm building a hut which has nothing of value. And after it's completed, it's covered with weeds. And that's a lot like our practice. Yes. Aspiration, you know, is part of it, right? So you have a strong, that's very strong, so that's good. And uh, uh, that will fruit, you know. Uh, but, and, um, aspiration with no attachment to the result. Because this moment is complete. So discontinuous and continuous are the opposites. And you have to understand them as a whole, that they're dynamically working together. Now, Dharma teachers often emphasize the absolute part because we don't get that part. We get the linear part. 
we don't get the discontinuous part. So they often emphasize. So in Dogen, he tries to emphasize that time is discontinuous, which is not what karma suggests. But they work together. They're whole. So they're happening simultaneously. So, so are you suggesting that the, again, this could all be just linked with the past and the present and the future, possibly all exist at the same time, at the same now? Yes, I'm suggesting that. I'm also suggesting that if you enter 162nd of a finger step, you enter no birth, no death, no time. You enter permanence, even though we say everything is impermanent. So that's those two opposites working together. What did she say? She said it so beautifully. Dan chosen veins. Dogen Zenji is at home in this world of apparent opposites. He's settled into apparent opposites. And he uses the word apparent, right? He is a mountain goat at play in the mountain range of paradox. Is it continuous? Is it discontinuous? Happily leaping from peak to peak. That's kind of his playing, playfulness. Leaping from the different sides. He doesn't get stuck. He understands both sides. He understands in between. Not understands. He just is it or knows it. And it's beneath discriminative thought. Because, you know, discriminative thought, I understand, I'm told, is similar to computers. It's binary. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So if we work through our discriminative mind, we always do the opposites against each other. So to understand them as a whole, you have to go beneath the mind that's talking all the time. Yes. I really like that um, that word coming home. Like that, that's something that I found uh, a very um, strong experience I had on a retreat where uh, it was a Vipassana retreat. We were practicing, you know, 13 hours a day, and I found myself after like the six or seven hours just constantly thinking about, oh, when I get home, I'm gonna do this. Oh, when I get off the cushion and have my tea, I'm gonna drink it like this. You know, the, the mind just likes to do all those things and just like constantly in that way, or just imagine how we were and the successive causes and conditions that brought us into the present moment. And then I just kind of clicked, like that, that kind of perception of a linear sense of me doing something, of achieving something, of wanting to be something other than just here present, where it's the connectivity of all conditions that were happening. And it just like felt like I was coming home to something that wasn't even like so much a realization, but it was just like a, this is the experience of it. This is just everything. And it's funny because I say this because of what uh, the question was last about you success.
moment is the result of the totality of our entire lives. So each one of those little sec like secular moments we might want to take and concretize in our practices is actually just us experiencing and being a receptacle for everything that contributed to that moment happening in our lives. And um, and that's, that's, I guess, to just work out what that discontinuous kind of feeling or realization kind of takes place in our lives. I didn't really have a question with this. Yeah, no. One thing I found recently, since I've been working on this, is it's kind of boring. Uh, because my mind is used to excitement and activity and wanting. So when I cut that, cut, cut, it's like, oh, you know. So I've had to become a change. I've had to really change to be more comfortable with nothing, nothing to do. It's really counter to how I've lived my life, which is that I'm a, a very achieving, productive, trying. Oh, boy. I'm so tired of trying. I am completely exhausted of Dharma trying. I just can't do it. Another, I mean, that's really what happened when I became the Zen teacher, is, oh my god, I have to let go. I can't try anymore. And, what, and the try is coming from the egocentricity anyway. But it's very different to, to live life in a different way, and I'm not that comfortable with it yet. I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know what to say to that. So. No. You know, the one I'm studying right now is usually the one I like the best. So I still love this and still feel I don't understand it, this fascicle, even though. I've studied it for a long time. I wrote about it. I still feel like I could spend my whole life on this one fascicle. But now, Daigo, great realization. Now I'm studying the Bendoa, and I think, oh my god, that's so incredible. Jiji Uzamai, what is that? To receive oneness. Oh, what's the third? To receive oneness and use it is Jiji Uzammai. Uh, so, so I don't know what's the best. Yeah. Can you, Um, 
I have to pull back and work from the back of my body. To live that way. And to answer the question. Um, and what I'm doing now in terms of my practice is I set my intentions at the beginning of the day. What are my spiritual intentions? Or what are my practices? And I try that there's a word. I try to keep those in mind. But as I go through the day, the most important thing is letting go. It's like this. And, um, and not holding on to the results of my actions. And in order to do that, I have to figure out trust. What do I trust in? Because otherwise, my ego won't let go. It feels it has to do it. So I need to trust more and more that total dynamic working is functioning in my life. And I don't have to do that much. All I have to do is what I'm supposed to do right now. Like, I'm giving a talk. And today at 11 o'clock, I prepared the talk. And two days ago, I made this. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, this is great. I have this. I got this because <laughs> I taught this. <laughs> so decision making. You keep an open, open mind listening to all the different viewpoints. And you try to be comfortable with not knowing what you're going to do. And you do that day after day after day. And then you know what? There comes a day, there comes a moment when you have to make the decision. The fork in the road is right here. I've spent three weeks with an open mind, taking in all the different variations, what my husband said, what the teacher said, what so-and-so said, what so-and-so said, what I felt like on this day, what I felt like on this day. And then at the moment of decision, I go in my gut and I say, what do you want to do? And I say, I'll go that way. And then I accept the karma of going that way. And I let it go. I'd like to uh, sing the merit offering song that I know. May the merit of this penetrate into each and everything and all places so that we and the world together may realize